The scripture reading for today is from Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him out, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those um, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to, them, called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever, would be, uh, who, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And e- for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Let me tell you a story as we begin. And I, I know some of you have heard this story before. Several years ago when Becky and I went through a, an assessment process for church planting. Church planner assessment pro- process. It's like uh, astronaut training for church planners, sort of a thing. And at part of the assessment process was a, basically an all-day project where they paired us up with three other couples. So four couples, uh, husband and wife teams, four couples together, And they put us in a room by ourselves, and the assessor said, we want you to spend the day planning to plant a church in this major metropolitan area. They gave us a particular part of the country, and they said, here are the demographics, the socioeconomic demographics of the area. Uh, uh, And they said, we want you to come up with a plan to plant a new church in this area, given all the data that we present to you. We want you to come up with a ministry plan. We want you to come up with a timeline. We want you to come up with a budget together. And we all want you to decide who will be the pastor of this church plan. Pick from among you whom the pastor will be. You're going to evaluate one another on how well you each do as individuals in this project throughout the day. We're going to evaluate all of you as well, and it will, this will be factored into your overall evaluation. And they said, go. And they walked away and left us alone for almost an entire day, four couples. And I'm not joking, in about five minutes, bedlam uh, just 
just bedlam occurred with these four pastors and their wives. In about five minutes, you had grown men bragging about their strengths and skills and abilities and experiences, criticizing one another for their inadequacies in who should be the church planner, the the, the lead pastor going into the project. You had wives defending their husbands. It it was crazy. And, And actually... I went and talked to the, the director of the entire assessment process for our denomination. His name is Ted Powers. After the fact, it was very stressful. After the fact, I, I, I said to Ted, it was chaos in there for a little while until we sorted out who was going to do what and learned how to get along with one another. He goes, oh, yeah, it, it can be an intense process. One year, we came back into the room and saw two pastors in a wrestling match on the table. So it makes you think what people will do when they are presented with the opportunity to take charge. And the clergy and religious professionals are not exempt from it, are they? So we are going to spend five weeks as a church looking at what the Bible has to say about leadership. It's not going to be an exhaustive study on biblical leadership. We don't have that kind of time. We're going to focus on what the New Testament has to say about leadership in the church, in Christianity. And it's not exhaustive. We're just going to focus on New Testament's understanding of leadership as it pertains to what our church is going to be doing for the next 12 months. Uh, In... October and November, probably in November, I'm going to ask those of you who are members of our church to submit to us names of men who will be trained and vetted and examined and and if approved by our denomination and if elected by you, will serve as your very first elders and deacons. Very first elders and deacons of Deep Run Church. Uh, That is when, when we have that, look, we're a new church. If you're new to us, we're also new to the community. When the training wheels come off for our church, that's when we have our own in-house ordained elders and deacons, not just myself. We have have elders in our denomination that serve us alongside of me, but they belong to other churches. So we borrow them when they're needed. But for the next 12 months, we're entering into a process where you as members will nominate and pray for, and we will vet and train, and you will, Lord willing, elect your first leaders. So the purpose of this series, and I'm calling it the Leadership Chronicles, the purpose of this series is to prepare our members to understand what type of people, what type of person you should nominate. Now, if you're not a member of Deep Run Church, I'm asking you to not check out. And maybe, maybe, maybe you're not even a Christian or maybe you don't see yourself as a follower of Jesus and you're just visiting today or you're pursuing, you're looking at Christianity. Great. Please don't check out. I think this is a great opportunity for you because I think what you're going to find throughout these five weeks is a refreshingly different view um, and, and paradigm of leadership than what you're used to seeing in the world and what you're used to seeing where you work and what you're used to seeing in politics and in government and on the playground and maybe even in your own home. 
So please stick with us as, we, as, as, I, in, as I try and prepare us in, uh, to nominate our first elders and deacons. So there's a, there's a famous quote by Shakespeare in his play Twelfth Night. And you may have heard this before. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want, this op- want to open this up to you. I want to hear your, your thoughts. What, what does the world regard as greatness in their leaders? And you think about the world in which we live and you think about leadership. What do people in our world regard as great when you think of the qualities and talents and abilities of leaders? What do you think? Yeah. Charisma. Well, charisma can get, charisma can take somebody very far, right? It's kind of like a way with people and a way with crowds. Um, yeah, yeah, charisma. Uh, what else? Having power and making sound decisions. Okay, so you're saying, uh, you're kind of hinting at the fact that there should be a balance between power and, and integrity. Would that be accurate? Okay, over here, yeah. Decisiveness, okay. So you're saying great leaders are decisive when they need to be. Okay. What else? Uh, How about in the back? Discernment. Discernment. Leaders need discernment. Yeah. What else? Success in their chosen endeavors. Okay. Success in their chosen endeavors. Uh, People tend to look for some kind of a track record. Okay. What else? Yeah. Somebody who can build consensus. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Can you say that again? Oh, a lot of times it's wealth. Like if somebody's wealthy, well, maybe they're qualified to be a leader. Okay. Interesting. Good. I'm glad you brought... I was hoping to get some more like... I don't mean this This is a good thing. I, I, I want to hear some more skeptical answers than just what you think is a good leader. And that was great, right? Sometimes people are rewarded with leadership because they're wealthy. Good. Yeah. Winners. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Tom Brady. Senator, Massachusetts Senator Tom Brady. Uh, it happens, right? It happens. Thank you. Good point. So people want, want to see somebody who can win. I'll, I'll, I'll get behind the winning horse. Yeah, no pun intended. Okay, yeah. Hmm. Military background and experience, and 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 for for some people, doesn't that military experience expose a leader to a lot of the traits that you're talking about? Discernment, decisiveness, um, the winning smile or the winning record, right in the back, yeah. Hmm. That, I'm glad you brought that up, right, because they want people to be decisive, but we are in a postmodern society where truth is subjective and not objective. And so it's almost like we want our leaders to be decisive, but we don't want them to stand for too many things. Okay, good, good. Very interesting, yeah. Popularity. Popularity, yep, yep. Accomplishments. What, what, what's, what's your resume look like? Was, was your hand up, Sarah? Yeah. 
Moral integrity, that's important to you? Good, I'm glad. <laughs> Good, yeah. Conviction. Like this person, you want this person to have conviction or the person has conviction. Okay, thank you. Maybe one or two more thoughts about a quality you think the world praises in leaders that makes them great, but you don't necessarily think is a good thing. Yeah. Physical beauty, being handser, right? Like, hey, that's a face for radio. I'm not voting for that person. Yeah, good. Another negative trait, yeah. Okay, you want leaders, sometimes we want leaders to say what we want to hear. Okay, good. The Apostle Paul had something to say about that. He said a time is coming where people are going to choose leaders who are just going to scratch their ears for them, meaning say what, say what you want people to say to you. Okay, good thought. One more, yeah. Okay, teleprompter, speech maker. All right, so no, and that kind of goes along with somebody said charisma. The first thing I heard today was charisma, eloquence, verbosity. Yeah, right. So, okay, great. I thank you very much for your thoughts. The greatest leader, according to Jesus, is the greatest servant. Jesus said, you want to be great? Be a servant. What I want to talk to you today as we look at Mark chapter 10 is how the world understands greatness and how the Bible understands greatness. How the world pursues greatness in leadership and how the church, the people of Jesus, the people that Jesus bought with his own blood, how the church should pursue greatness as it relates to its leaders. Now, the world pursues greatness by, in general, left unchecked, asserting dominance. And we see that in the Zebedee boys, James and John. They were the Zebedees, the sons of thunder, the thunder brothers. Uh, these guys find Jesus and they basically grasp, they, they try and seize an opportunity. What do they basically say to Jesus? Look, whenever this big kingdom coming thing happens when it goes down we want to be at your right and your left side we want to be your top advisors when the time comes and you take over because everybody was impressed with jesus when you take over jesus we want to be your right hand and your left hand men right give it to us those prize positions in your cabinet even their mother, if you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew records that even their mother got in on the request and went to Jesus and said the same thing. I think the Zebedee's mom was the first helicopter parent of the New Testament. And she comes in and says the same thing, make my boys your number one and your number two. And we find out what Mark says is what happens. The other 10 disciples hear about it. And they become indignant. The word is indignant. That's a big word. It means they were ticked. They were super ticked off, right? Where do these two guys get? We're all on the same page here. We're all equals. We're a company of equals following the rabbi. Where do they get off thinking that they're better? The audacity of these guys. So it didn't help the problem at all. Actually, this wasn't new. This had been going on. If you read earlier, you look back in Mark chapter 9, there was, there was another point where on the road... Behind Jesus, they were arguing amongst each other about who was the greatest. 
So this theme keeps coming up in an opportunistic time. These two guys, the Thunder Brothers, they seize, they try and seize this opportunity. And it doesn't go very well. By the way, for those of you who are skeptical about the Bible, this is another proof, I believe, of the Bible's integrity and the Bible's authenticity. Because the people who wrote the Bible and the leaders, the first leaders of the early church, are seen here as very normal people with vices, with, with pride. Right? They're, the apostles are letting the New Testament record their biggest, most embarrassing faults. Grabbing for power, arguing, arguing like children over or like pastors, sorry, (laughs) like church planners, arguing over who is the best. We shouldn't be surprised by this. This is how people are, right? This is just how people are. It is the cyclical plot of history, of human history, right? One person or one sibling or one spouse, one tribe of people, one people group, one nation trying to outmaneuver another. To serve its best interest. People tend to seek uh, to manipulate the circumstances or other people in order to, in order to benefit themselves. That, that is what you will read in the history books. Is this one long story of that plot turning on itself again and again. And we see it right here amongst the twelve. Now whether you might do that... Manipulate people or the circumstance for your own benefit, whether you do that aggressively or whether you do it passively and subtly and gently. However you shake it, uh, leadership is often attained and kept by people serving themselves, by people looking out for their own best interest. But Jesus took exception to this. And so because of that, the New Testament's perspective on leadership, I think, is refreshingly different. It was at the time, 2,000 years ago, refreshing. And I'm telling you, if you look at it, it's going to be refreshing to you right now. The church must pursue greatness by relinquishing the need to dominate. As an organization, as an institution, and as individual Christians... The church must pursue greatness by relinquishing the temptation and the need to dominate, to coerce, to manipulate. There was a great contrast as you read through the four Gospels. A great contrast in Jesus' own sense of purpose and identity and the sense of purpose and identity that others try to project onto him. And you see it abundantly in the parables that he taught. You see this great difference, this great contrast. You see it in his miracles, and you see it in his very actions. Um, What people intended for Jesus and what Jesus intended for himself, very, very different. And here, he just explicitly states the difference. This comes right out and says it in verses 42 and 43 and 44. Because they're arguing now over what James and John did. And he takes them all aside and he says, you know, that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And that phrase, lord it over somebody, it means to subjugate another person. It means to dominate another person forcefully. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever of you would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you 
must be slave of all. Jesus is using the language of service. Let me put it to you this way. Do you want to enjoy the finest meal? The most decadent, delicious meal? Well, if you really want to enjoy such a meal, first you need to learn to be like the waiter or the waitress who serves that meal to you. Who goes unthanked and overlooked in order that you would enjoy yourself. Do you want to enjoy the rights of free people? You want to live in freedom? First learn to be like the person who has no rights. First be like the person who simply exists to promote your agenda, who doesn't have an agenda. This is what Jesus is saying. It is radical. Now, in, actually, he goes on in verse 45 to give the reason for all of this. Why should greatness be linked to service? He goes, well, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, in the Jewish context here, people who knew the Old Testament, uh, the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself and serving one another, that wasn't new. They would have understood that by reading the Torah. But to hear the Messiah... To hear, to hear the Son of Man, to hear the Son of God, to hear the King, the Son of David, consider himself a servant above everything else? He was a king. He was Lord. He was a warrior. He was the Lion of Judah. But to hear himself primarily identify himself as a servant, this was unexpected. This is what they couldn't understand, what they couldn't swallow. So Jesus here really reveals what his life and what his mission were essentially about. He was a servant, the servant of the Lord, who not only serves the Lord, but serves the people. It was scandalous. So the New Testament writers later would say and would show, just read the book of Acts and see how the church advanced through the book of Acts. It happens as the church exists as a community of servants, people who serve one another and people who serve their neighbors, listen, sacrificially. That's the key because he's saying that the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and what? To give his life as a ransom for many. So it is sacrificial service. And that is how Jesus sows the seeds of his gospel in the world. Through our sacrificial service. It's not just talking about Jesus. Because you can still be a jerk and talk about Jesus. Yeah. You can still be selfish and talk about Jesus. Jesus sows the seeds of his life-transforming gospel through our sacrificial service. And Jesus reaps a harvest for that gospel through our sacrificial services. Read the book of Acts. And we looked at it all last year. The church's leaders, above all, must exemplify this sacrificial service. A leader in the church, it, it is his job to exemplify the sacrificial service of Jesus. I think back of The Magician's Nephew, which was written by C.S. Lewis. And it's about the creation of Narnia, when Aslan, the lion, creates Narnia. And he appoints as the very first king of Narnia this, this, this cockney British guy named Frank. He's just like a normal, humble, unassuming guy. 
and Aslan makes him the very first king of Narnia. And Aslan says to him something very interesting. He says, if enemies came against the land, for enemies will arise, and there was war, would you be the first in the charge and the last in the retreat? And Frank says, well, and this is a summary, by the way. And Frank says, well, yeah, I'll do the best I can. And Aslan said, well, good, because that's what a king should do. You're the first into danger, and you're the last out of it. The body of Jesus Christ, the church. And by the way, you know this is, if you're a parent, you know this is true. The group can only succeed and flourish as the leader sacrifices herself, as the leader sacrifices himself. You know this as a parent. If you don't make sacrifices for your kids, they're going to pay the price later. And it's true in the church. So when you, and, and I'll explain how it works. I'll give you a nice little sheet, you know, a nice little guide. But, but those of you who are members of our church, later this fall, when you submit names of people uh, to go through training to become, vetting to become elders and deacons, when you submit names, when you think of a person, you say, I want to I wanna nominate this person to be an elder or to be a deacon. You have to ask yourself, is this person a servant? When I look at his life, when I look at what he does and what, I, what he says, I know nobody's perfect, but can you see evidence of a sacrificial person, of a self-giving person? You must not move forward if you don't see that. If you ask yourself, is somebody qualified to be a leader, you must first ask the question, is he a servant? Sacrificial servant. Paul said to the Galatians, You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by each other. The church is at its worst when leaders and everybody under them are just about serving themselves. I really think that's when the people of God are at our worst, is when leaders serve themselves and look out for their own best interests. Look, let's face it, our natural bent for all of us is we would rather serve ourselves and we would rather see others as existing to serve our needs and respond to our agendas. And individualism is a big deal in Western culture and in America. Individualism is a big deal but it's, it can be deceptive because you, you, can talk, you can talk about, let's say, social justice. You can talk about it. You can post things on social media about justice and about what's right and what's wrong politically. You can, you can donate time and energy, um, and yet you can still spend most of your time and spend most of your energy focused on What works for you? Focusing on what makes your life and your family comfortable. What serves your own interests? You can talk big, but at the end of the day, uh, we still end up spending a lot of our money and our time on what meets our own personal or familial needs. We can blindly 
serve our own needs. You know, we can blindly enslave ourselves to our own advancement. We can blindly enslave ourselves to our own need for comfort and leisure. Look, some, some of us want to win and dominate right, and beat the other guy like James and John. Yes, yeah, some, some of us want that. But some of us, some of us just don't want to be bothered, right? Some of us just want to be left alone. That's how we serve our own best interests. We just don't want to be bothered. We don't want to be asked to do anything. The church, see, this cripples the church's ability to live as a community of servants. To serve one another and to serve our world. When we are blinded by our devotion to our own desires for advancement or for comfort. But the church is not about, the church is not about domination. The church is not about self-preservation and its leaders must Embrace that reality. Otherwise, and this is, this, is, this is why it's so important that your leaders are servants. Because otherwise, when conflict arises in the church, or when crisis comes, because it will. I mean, we're going to have crises. We're going to have conflicts. It's, this is the world, people. When conflicts and crises come, a leader who is not committed as a servant will just serve his own interests. When things get difficult and things get scary... These people will serve their own interests and not yours. Which is why you need to fundamentally look for and these people need to fundamentally see themselves as servants to Christ's people and to the community. So candidates for leadership in the church, in Christ's church, must have already, and I'm going to use that word again, already demonstrated sacrificial service. We're not just talking about potential and intelligence, and charisma, and a track record of of success in business and in the marketplace. We're talking about already having demonstrated sacrificial service. Service before honor. Service before honor. And do you realize that that's true of Jesus? The paradigm of exemplifying sacrificial service before you honor a person is true of Jesus himself. You look back at verse 38 when he confronted James and John. He asked them this this very simple question. Well, actually, it wasn't a question. He said to them, you do not know what you are asking me. You want to be at my right and my left? You have no idea what you are asking me. And he went on to say to them, are you going to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? He meant the cup of God's wrath. And then he said, you, you want to be baptized with, in this, with the same baptism in which I'm going to be baptized? He meant the baptism of death and burial. You guys don't know. You're asking for a cabinet position. You don't know what that entails. And I can't promise you a cabinet position, Jesus said to them, but I can promise you that you are going to suffer sacrificially. James, James was executed by one of the Herods over a decade later. John lived to be a very, very, very old man. And as a very, very old man, he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos during one of the persecutions of the time. So Jesus predicts, you're going to drink the cup I'm going to drink. You're going to be baptized in the way that I'm going to be baptized. But the whole, like, number one and number two thing, I can't promise you that. You really don't know what you're asking. What did Jesus mean by that? 
you don't know what you're asking. Well, what helps me interpret what Jesus is saying is going back to our confession of faith today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I'll read it for you again. Where Paul said, because he was talking about unity in the church. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Do you see? The reason we worship Jesus, yes, he's God. Yes, he's the creator. But the reason we worship Jesus is just as much true that he suffered. We worship Jesus. Jesus is exalted because he gave his right to be exalted up. Do you see that? Jesus had every right to dominate as a human being here. He had every right to take over. It was all his anyway. But he submitted himself. He emptied himself he didn't try and grasp for, for control. He gave it up. And that's why God exalted him. And that's why God will exalt you. If you humble yourself and give up the desire to dominate or coerce or manipulate or to hide and serve others, God will exalt you. That's how it works. That's what Jesus was talking about. You guys want to be exalted? You've got to bring yourselves low. That's the path to greatness in Jesus' economy. You want to be great? You have to lower yourself and become a servant. And he exemplified it, didn't he? Jesus takes his own medicine. Now, are you thinking, wait a minute, God exalts people who lower themselves and become servants? So, so would God exalt somebody who has ulterior motives right? that just acts really nice and gives away her money and, and does nice things just to get ahead? Will God reward me just because I want to be rewarded and so I'll just do nice things for people in order to get my reward? No, not at all, because God knows the heart. You don't know a politician's heart. You don't know a monarch's heart. You don't know your teacher's heart or your boss's heart, but God does. God knows the motives. And why was Jesus glorified for giving himself up? Because his motivation was love. Love is the motivation to give yourself up, to serve one another. It was Paul who said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's the love of Jesus that compels us to do what we do in our lives. It's the love of Jesus that compels us. And he went on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, and Jesus died for all that those who live might, listen to this, might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died. And was raised. And so in that vein, it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. Now, I know some of you are students. I'm not saying, stay in school. Stay in school. Okay? You, don't, you didn't hear this from me. Um, you, don't have, you don't have to have a college degree 
to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of, theory of relativity. What, what Martin Luther King Jr. was saying was, you don't have to be impressive and educated and accomplished to be a servant. What do you need? He said, you only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. A heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. That is Jesus. And that is the makeup of any leader who, who serves in Jesus' name. And that's where we start. <laughs> there are other qualifications for leadership. But that's where we start when we consider who will lead, who is God calling to lead in his church that he has bled and died for, that he is married to, that he loves, that he is coming back to make perfect. So in the reality that Jesus has laid out for us, the greatest leader is the greatest servant. So give up your need and your desire to dominate and to manipulate and to coerce or to serve yourself and embrace a servant's heart. And Jesus will give that to you. Let him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We glorify you that the Lord Jesus was a humble man. That though he created the universe by the word of his power. That though he is returning as a judge to right injustice. He was a humble man. He was a gentle man. He did not snuff out smoldering wicks. He did not bruise tottering weeds, reeds. Uh, he was humble and he was gentle, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And he has wooed us, wooed us into loving him because of his gentleness, because of his servant's heart. And now in his name, give us the heart of a servant, the heart of our Savior Jesus. Give it to us, Lord, not only as individuals and wives and husbands and employers and employees. Give it to us um, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Give it to us as, as a body, as a community of believers. And in Jesus' precious name, the name that is above all names. Amen.